Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, it's another big week in terms of storyline development across the daytime dial. So on Bold and Beautiful, Ridge, who thinks Brooke called Child Protective Services on Thomas, heads to Aspen, where Taylor and Steffi just happen to be. He's going to clear his head and maybe some more. (laughs) Uh, Over at Days of Our Lives, Jennifer will remember that she's the one who struck Gwen and the two will make peace. Uh, And on Young and the Restless, Noah will run into his ex at the opening of the Glam Club and surprise, it's newcomer Audra. But the biggest story is definitely Esme's return to General Hospital, which you have all the scoop about. I do indeed. I interviewed her portrayer, Avery Pohl, who gave me all the dish about how she found out that Esme was going to be presumed dead, how she spent her hiatus from the show, and what it was like to make her triumphant return to Port Charles. Uh, So as fans know, Esme fell from the parapet at Windermere during a very hostile confrontation with Ava, who had just discovered that Esme had slept with Nicholas, Ava's husband. And both Ava and Nicholas have been laboring under the false belief that Esme died. So Esme returns just as cunning as she ever was, but Avery told me that the character's time off screen has been one of change and transformation. She uh, is essentially on the run because of the crimes that she committed against Trina, Jocelyn, and Cameron with the sex tape. But she has a lot of unfinished business that draws her back to town, not only with Nicholas and Ava and Spencer, but also with her father, Ryan. So there are going to be a lot of surprises coming up in this storyline, and I am excited that it's finally kicking off. Uh, Another familiar face popping up on GH is that of Brianna Lane, who subbed for a pregnant Amanda Seton as Brooklyn in 2020. She is coming back for just one episode that will air next week. And uh, one last bit of very exciting GH news. We can also report to fans that there is a date for them to circle on their calendar. Barring any unforeseen preemptions, Emma Sams' return to the show as Holly will air on Wednesday, October 19th. Oh, I will definitely be circling that date. I cannot wait to see her back. Um, and also coming back next week is Rourke Critchlow. Today's as Mike Horton. Uh, he will cross paths with Nancy in an interesting way while in town to help Jennifer. So I know I say this all the time, but I really tip my hat to the day's writers for the way they weave visitors in and out so seamlessly. I mean, besides Mike in recent weeks, we've seen Chandler Massey reprise Will, who came to Salem to see Sonny. Uh, Kevin Spiritus, whose Craig swung back into town as the red herring killer of Abigail. 
and Kyle Louder is heading back as Rex, who will deal with Kate's illness. You know, I feel it just adds emotional heft to the stories and grounds them so much more in reality. I mean, how many times have we picky picky when someone doesn't come back for a wedding or a funeral or a crisis? And, you know, seeing the extended family is a bonus. And I love that the shows don't feel as pressured to write, you know, characters in for like a long term. You know, in real life, some people just visit for a few days, you know? Yeah, yeah. And speaking of visits, I got such a kick out of Nikki's crossover from YLR to B&B. It felt to me like both she and Sean Kanan, who plays Deacon, had an absolute ball with the material that was written for them. And what I was not expecting, but absolutely loved, was Nikki catching that glimpse of Sheila, uh, albeit in disguise. I thought it was just very cleverly done and a great way to maximize the shared history between those two shows. I agree, and I really hope we see more in the future. Uh, And our guest today is Nikki herself. It's Melody Thomas-Scott, who has been very busy on screen, but is also gearing up to kick off the 50th anniversary of Young and the Restless. So let's get her on the line and let the celebration begin. Hi, Melody. Hello, Stephanie. How you doing? Great. Good. You've caught me at a good time. I just did all my scenes for this morning, and here I am still in hair and makeup. Excellent. And looking beautiful as ever. Well, Mara and I were discussing how much we adored your last podcast. You were one of our favorite guests. We are so excited to speak to you again. But surprisingly, there was a lot of territory we did not cover. So we're going to get into that today. Well, we're going to go back to the beginning. Uh, You were a child actress. So tell us how you first got involved in show business. How much time do we have today? My goodness. Um, Well, I was raised by my grandmother, which everybody knows. And um, she kind of had aspirations for herself to be in show business, which clearly was not going to happen. Um, and she tried, She had tried to get my aunt into this business. Uh, they moved here from Jamestown, New York, uh, because my aunt won a talent, a, a, a screen test is what they call them then. Uh, and the prize was a train trip out to Hollywood and a screen test, and nothing came of it. But that got the family out here. And so my grandmother did not want to go back to Jamestown. It's just the weather. It's nothing against Jamestown. I love Jamestown. But uh, so then this happened, that happened. I'm born. Both my parents are 16. And uh, of course, when I come home from Cedars, where I was born, I went home to my grandmother's house and uh, she quickly got legal guardianship of me. So then she had another person she could try to get into show business me um and uh, so i started very early i was a meglin kitty at age three and started you know taking all the dance lessons sing lessons acting lessons and um i started working professionally when i was four so um that is how it happened was i pushed yes but did i love it yes so um that that worked out that that could square in my head, I suppose. So had she not done that, I would not be on this incredible show today. I would not have the career that I've had. So I do have to thank her for that. And that may be the only thing I have to thank her for. But now we're going into other topics. (laughs) Anyway, so that that's how it happened. That's how it began. Well, I will interrupt to say, 
your book that you wrote that came out in 2020 does cover a lot of this and, you know, very uh, explicitly. And it is an incredible read. I read it in one sitting. It was so fascinating. And so for anyone who has not read it, um, I highly recommend and put us on pause, buy it, and then click play again. You guys, I have to start carrying you around with me too. <laughs> I like the way you think. We're we're available. So uh, when you worked with Alfred Hitchcock on your first film, Marnie, did you have any sense of him being Alfred Hitchcock or were you too young to have a sense of his stature, if you will? Absolutely not. Um, I had worked with so many other directors before that. Uh, to me, he was just another director. I, I had no idea who Alfred Hitchcock was. I was eight. Uh, but I very quickly learned that he was a very scary heavy breathing, uh, critical guy. Uh, so, which is not hard for a lot of people to believe when I tell them this. Uh, he he was exactly how you would think, never smiled, uh, very clear about exactly what he wanted. And, you know, I'm a kid and maybe I didn't quite get what he wanted. It, it was hard, it was a hard shoot, but uh, scary, scary guy. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1976, you appeared in John Wayne's final film, The Shootist. Uh, so what do you remember about working with him? He was a doll. He was so lovely. And um, we shot some of that in um, Carson City, Nevada, on location. And my first day there, transportation drove me out to the set just to meet him. I wasn't working that day. And uh, somebody, some AD went up and knocked on his trailer and there I am down at the bottom of the stairs waiting. And he comes up bigger than life, extends this huge bear paw, it seemed, uh, to me and grabbed my hand um, and and was could not have been more gracious. And I do remember very clearly at the time he was quite ill with cancer. And uh, a, lo a lot of people knew this in the industry. And he had one of those... Uh, what, like a copper bracelet that people used to wear back in the day. They thought that would help them with their cancer. Um, so I remember seeing that as he was holding my hands. And uh, of course, unfortunately, that that was, it, it did turn out to be his last film. So I was so honored to be a part of it. Well, before you even came to YNR, in addition to film work, you had accrued a pretty impressive television resume, including uh, episodes of My Three Sons, an episode of Ironside, a recurring role on The Waltons. Is is there a pre YNR role that you have the most fun doing, or you know, a set that you most enjoyed being on? You know what? I was such. Um, how can I put this? I had kind of a dreary home life. Let's th say that. And the only time I was really truly happy in my childhood was when I was on a set. So any set would do, even Hitchcock's, uh, to, to have the chance to, to be around what I considered normal people. You know, the crew were always so sweet to me. The director, the AD, uh, well, I already said the thing about Hitchcock, so maybe not that director, but uh, to be on any set for whatever it is, a commercial, a TV show, a film, that's where I wanted to be. That's where I wanted to live. I would have spent the night on the soundstage floor every night if I could. Wow. Because it was such a respite for me from the things I had to deal with at home. Mm -hmm. 
Well, as you wrote the book that I mentioned, um, Always Young and Restless, did you ever marvel at the amazing credits that you amassed before even joining Daytime? Because it is pretty impressive and all the people you worked with as well. I don't think I thought of it that way. I I was just grateful that uh, I was able to make a living. This is, of course, after I was a, a young adult and had moved out and had my own apartment and then had new concerns like, how am I going to pay my rent this month? I was so fortunate to continue to work at such a pace that paying the rent was not taxing for me. Um, I never had to wait tables, which in retrospect, I wish that I had had to. I always wanted to. And and I never did. I know this is a, a terrible thing to complain about. But um, I was just happy if I could pay the bills and pay my rent and go on about my day as a grown-up person, not having to be stuck in my family home anymore. I was living my real life and was able to afford it. And that was all that I cared about. Well, uh, when you joined YNR in 1979, it was as an emergency recast when the show said goodbye to Erica Hope, who had played Nikki for the first six months or so. What do you remember about the audition itself? I remember... Um, I remember coming in to read for their casting director, who was Trudy Sauce at the time. And um, and then I left that audition, thought nothing more about it because I had just gotten um, a, a contract role on an NBC sitcom pilot. And of course, if you know me at all, I just want to be funny. I mean, why live if you can't be funny? I wanted to do the comedy. And, uh, and then, so that happened. And then my agent said, oh, they want to see you again tomorrow to go back for the YNR. And I'm like, well, why am I even going back? I already know that I'm going to take this other job. Uh, but of course, you know, she sent me, I went. And that one was with John Convoy, our executive producer at the time. And again, you know, we, we read some lines and then he got very, very serious with me. He said, he moved forward in his desk. He said, Melody, how would you feel about being part of a daytime drama community? And I didn't know what the hell he was talking about, really. <laughs> I, I, I was uh, not too savvy to the way producers have so talk. And I just said, like, oh, uh, sure, sure, okay. And uh, again, I went home, didn't think anything more about it until my agent calls me and says, well, guess what? They want you on Young and Restless, too. And I'm like, oh, well, well, we're not doing it. You know, we have to do the, the sitcom. And she talked night and day for the next couple of days. Just wouldn't let it go. Melody, you have to do Y&R. It'll be fun for you. It's only three years. You'll have a good time. And well, you know, you have to listen to your agent. And so I took YNR almost begrudgingly. Uh, but the good news was that the NBC pilot never even sold. So um, she was definitely right in gearing me towards the right direction. So that's how it all happened. I, I did not, I had never seen the show. I didn't know anything about daytime and, uh, you know, comedy. <laughs> But didn't you later find out how uh, William J. Bell, the show's creator and head writer, weighed in on your casting, even though he was Chicago based at the time? After he asked me, do I want to be a part of the community? 
I then had to come back to do a talent test. And again, same what I just told you, didn't care if I got the part or not. <laughs> uh, and so then my agent calls me because at that time, Bill had to see on, on tape, he had to see the actors who would audition, especially when they got down to that uh, time where I think it was just between me and another girl who was a good friend of mine. And she really, really wanted the job. And I felt so bad. Uh, so they had to put the three quarter tape on an airplane, send it to Chicago. One of his messengers would go to O'Hare, pick up the tape, rush it to his apartment. And that so that he could watch the talent test before he could make his decision, which in this day and age sounds incredible, but that was how they had to do it. And so my agent then calls me and she says, well, you got young and restless. And again, I was stunned to hear this. She said, um, and she also represented the other young lady who had tested as well. And she said, well, Bill Bell said that she was prettier, but you were the better actress. And, you know, I'm only 22 and I wasn't quite sure how to take that. <laughs> but uh, and, and he was absolutely right. She was much prettier than me. But, um, you know, in daytime, I guess the acting is more important. So anyway, that is how it all began. And it took me a long time to learn the ins and outs of daytime. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, but I don't regret it. I mean, oh, absolutely. That was the right decision. Mm -hmm. Well, when we do say the name Bill Bell, what is the first story that comes to mind for you? Um, I started the show in February of 79. One month later in March, March 26th, was uh, the show's anniversary. I can't remember now what year it was at the time, but they always had a big, big party. Bells flew out from Chicago and hosted this beautiful party uh, at the Beverly Hills Hotel downstairs in the Crystal Room, the big ballroom, and there were hundreds of people there. Um, and I was brand new, but I remember the dress that I wore. I came across the dress that I wore to that party just the other day at my house. <laughs> I know, I'm not a hoarder or anything. <laughs> and um, I barely knew who he was, but somebody told me. And the next thing I know, he comes up to me and extends his hand and asks me to dance. And uh, I would, again, I was so naive to, you know, professional parties and that I thought, well, I can't dance with him because I see his wife is right there. Just so stupid. But anyway, so I danced with him. And um, he just got this faraway look in his eye, which years later I came to know that he's thinking story when he gets that look on his face. But I didn't know that then. He's just staring at me, staring at me. And then the dance is over. So we stop dancing and he looks at me again and he says, captivating, simply captivating as Bill could sound sometimes, because he's still dreaming about story. And uh, I, I've never forgotten those two words that he said to me, because I didn't know him at all yet. And uh, of course, I will never forget that. I love that. That's amazing. What is the first story that comes to mind when we say the name of his wife and frequent collaborator, the woman on the sidelines of that dance, Lee Philip Bell? Lee Bell was one of a kind she was so charming and elegant 
understated, tasteful, and so smart. And if you ever are at a dinner where they are hosting or you have a chance to sit next to Lee, I always was trying to sit next to Lee because she had that uncanny ability to make you feel like you were the only person in the room. Uh, The only other person I've met that is the same is Hillary Clinton. She has that ability as well. But Lee... Oh, I I always was trying to be like her. I strive to be like her. I never accomplished it, but um, I I think a great deal of her. I I think she's amazing. And Laura Lee is so lucky to have had her as a mother. Mm -hmm. And she knows it. (laughs) Uh, So a primary relationship in Nikki's life when you first began playing her was the one she shared with her sister, Casey, played by Roberta Layton. So what stands out to you about working with Roberta and that sibling dynamic that you played? We adored each other, I think, from day one. Um, We just had a simpatica between us without trying. And we became very close very quickly. And I just adore her. She's a great actress. I mean, when she spoke her lines, you weren't thinking about your next line. Well, no good actor should be doing that. But you were listening. I I was listening to her and so caught up in the way she was saying those lines because they seem so real. And of course I tried to do that in kind. I don't know if I succeeded, but um, just a lovely, wonderful actress and just a great friend. Well, when you began on the show and in the years where you were a relative newbie, this is before marriage and children came along for you, you know, did you socialize with people in the cast and who were your going out buddies, if so? Um, Well, Roberta, of course, is one. Uh, Hasselhoff was, well, I don't remember the year that Hasselhoff left, but um, back in the day with the old crew that we had, Wings Hauser, who played Nikki's first husband, Greg. And uh, it it was a different time then. And nobody really thought much about hanging out with actors versus non-actors. We all were just one big happy family. We'd hang out with crew that you wouldn't know the names if I told you. But uh, we we didn't really think about only hanging out with actors. Um, That that was not anything in our mindset. But we would have tons of fun uh, just doing crazy things. Uh, I, I remember, here's a story. I don't know if I've told this. I got called to John Conboy's office. He says, what would you think of Nikki being a mud wrestler? And I was so thrilled. I didn't really even understand what that meant, but I was so happy I wasn't being fired. I'm like, great, absolutely no problem. So I immediately go and I tell Roberta, I said, listen, I just got told that Nikki's going to be a mud wrestler. And at that time, up on Sunset, there were all these mud wrestling clubs, hard to believe now, but it was very popular. And so Roberta and I would go. We were going there like every night and I'm like right in there getting mud splashed in my face because I'm I'm doing research now. (laughs) And uh, then, so I, I, I finally was excited about it. And then I hear maybe a week later that um, CBS programs and practices got wind of this idea and they nixed it. And so because she couldn't be a mud wrestler, Bill decided to make her a stripper. That that was not the original plan. But uh, I'm kind of, of, well, I don't know. I don't know what's worse. (laughs) 
I'm just thinking of the great photos we would have had of the mud wrestling. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, in 1984, when Victor and Nikki married for the first time, they had what just may be the most glamorous and lavish wedding in the show's history. So your costume was custom made to the tune of $20,000, was embellished with 20,000 beads and pearls, and featured a 10-foot train. So were you involved in the design process of that dress at all? Absolutely not. They had hired these outside designers who you you did they let you know right away you don't talk back you know it's their design it's their vision and that's how it's going to be and uh and they were there on the set when we were shooting that wedding just fussing not over me fussing over the dress i was wearing and uh boy we had some long hours shooting that and i do remember being so tired one night that I, you know, call me what you will, but I just lied down on the stage floor wearing that dress. And oh my God, they were apoplectic. They were like, oh, oh my God, get her up, get her up, get her up. But um, no, and it was a beautiful dress. And I think it weighed a little more than what you said. Uh, I was told it weighed 30 pounds. <laughs> but um, it, it, it was uh, really a fairy tale wedding, that's for sure. And I don't think I realized at the time, again, not savvy, uh, that it was the grandest, most elegant wedding YNR has ever had. I didn't really know that yet. Mm -hmm. Well, Melody, we, we sadly never had the occasion to have pictures of you mud wrestling, but we <laughs> do have a picture of, of you flashing what appear to be polka dot boxers underneath the dress. I need the context for this. I really don't remember why I did that, <laughs> uh, except to be funny. See, there's that whole funny thing again that gets me into trouble. Uh, I think I just thought it was funny. And I, <laughs> I don't think I realized anybody was ever going to see it. The, the, yeah, there was that one quick flash when he picks me up. I know. <laughs> oh, you were right. It is funny. What is a good damn thing I had those on too. Who knew that people are going to see my knickers? <laughs> Nikki's knickers. It's been a new column. Um, well, other than it being ex an exhausting shoot, what else do you remember about filming that wedding? I just remember the grandiosity and the pageantry of it. We had all these former cast members return and it it really it was quite breathtaking. I I was old enough to realize that and I knew that what we were doing was very special. I don't think I quite knew how many years later we would still be talking about it. Uh but I love to talk about it, so that's not a problem. You probably also didn't know how many more weddings you would have <laughs> on the show. Um, so obviously, you know, that ceremony had like a grandeur and an opulence that is just not seen today. But even today, with the scaled back ceremonies that are more typical, weddings do tend to make for long days at the office. So what do you do? to combat boredom and or just generally stay sane when you are a guest at one of those long soap opera weddings? I try to make people laugh. I try to be funny. And then I often get in trouble by the stage manager because I'm cutting up and I'm not, you know, settle down, settle down, settle down. Mel, you. <laughs> uh, I can't help it. <laughs> 
I think that was actually our takeaway was how funny you were last time. Like she's hysterical. Who knew? They see that's the greatest compliment I can get. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, in 1989, you proved that perhaps you missed your calling as a casting director when you suggested Peter Bergman as a recast for the role of Jack, which became available when Terry Lester exited the show. So tell us what you remember about being struck with that inspiration. I, um, I have a very dear friend who lives in Toronto, Lalana Novakovich. I'm sure you know her. And um, my husband and I were going up there. I don't think it was for an appearance. We were doing something else. And um, we met Lalana at a restaurant and she had brought a copy of Soap Opera Digest and it was sitting on the table. And of course I pick it up and I'm going through it. And uh, I read that Peter Bergman has been let go from all my children which made no sense to me because I was a huge All My Children fan. I loved him. My Cliff Warner. I I could not believe they had made this decision. And we had just learned about Terry wanting to leave. And it was like lightning struck me at that table. And I said, by God, I know who our next Jack Abbott should be. And uh, Lalana and my husband said, Who? And I held up the magazine. I said, Peter Bergman. And uh, I think Lalana said, well, really, Mel? Because, I mean, I love him, too. But he, Jack Abbott is nothing like Cliff Warner. I said, I know it. I know it. But there is something. I just know that he could be a great Jack. And um, Edward didn't know who he was yet. But he told the powers that be. And the next thing you know, they were fly- the show is flying Peter to L.A. for a, a talent test. And of course, we all know the end result of that. And I, 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 ju- I, I could just see him as Jack. And uh, I hate to say that I'm right, but I was right on that. <laughs> of course you were. Well, I believe, the, as the saying goes, when you're right, you're right. So, so you uh, have worked closely with Peter at various junctures over his decades on the show. So tell us about working with Peter and him being your leading man intermittently. Peter, oh goodness, he's so many things. He's funny too. Uh, wonderful actor. Uh, he's another actor that, well, in, in the very beginning when I worked with him, I was mesmerized because he makes those lines sound absolutely real to the point where you you almost get distracted and forget what your next line is because he's that good and so real. Um, very professional. He's probably the most professional actor we've ever had on this show. He prides himself in always being on time, always knowing his lines doesn't even come to the set for rehearsal with his script in hand, which we all do because we need to reference things before we actually are on camera. Uh, I've never seen him bring a script. I've never seen him bring a cell phone to the set. Uh, Now that's professional. Uh, I, I didn't either for the longest time, but now I'm afraid I can't say the same about myself. But um, he's, he's so delightful and fun, always ready with a, witty story and uh it's so much fun to travel with him sitting on a plane with him 
uh, he, he's just darn funny to be with. He's fun to be with. Of course, I supply the funny. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's wonderful. And I, I think we all feel the same about him. Mm-hmm. Um, so throughout your time at YNR, you've had the occasion to do something that Mara and I are both so incredibly jealous of, which is appear on a variety of game shows, including the $25,000 Pyramid, Hollywood Squares, and Match Game. But you appeared most frequently on my favorite show, Pyramid, and you are excellent at that game. So we found a clip on YouTube of you giving clues in a winner's circle, cool as a cucumber, of course, and the clues you gave were excellent. So what was your favorite game show experience? Oh, well, of course, it had to be Pyramid. Uh, whether it be 10,000, 25,000, or 50,000, because the, the title had to keep changing. Right. Um, there, I can't explain. There's, there's a chip in my brain that understands that show and understands how to play it. Uh, I am very much a word person. I'm Scrabble, Bananagrams, Crosswords. So I've always had that kind of wordy thing in my head, but... I knew that I was good at it and I really wanted to win money for my contestant. And uh, I have actually, over the years, I continue to hear from some of my former contestants who they attribute their win to me and my clues, which is very gracious and sweet. Uh, It was was a life-changing a prize for some of these contestants. It was very big money at that time. And I, I just, I, I could have done that show regularly and not, not that I didn't, but I would have loved to be a regular on it. And I had the good fortune to have Dick Clark there. Dick was still alive. He ran that show like a top and it, it was all such a wonderful experience all the way around. I just loved it. Thank you. I'm so glad you liked them. Love. <laughs> I have a follow-up question. Were you ever haunted by like the one clue that went awry and the person didn't get the money? Sometimes, but I could never blame that on the contestant. I, that that was fully me to blame. And, you know, you just, it's like, I play the spelling bee. Do you play New York Times spelling bee? But that haunts me too every day. <laughs> When I find out what the answers were for the previous day, and if I missed a couple, oh my God, how could I be so stupid? <laughs> uh, so I'm sure that I I carried on like that with Pyramid as well. <laughs> well, speaking of games, we thought it would be fun to play a little game with you that we're going to call Me Versus Her. Her, of course, is Nikki. Oh. So we're going to give you some categories, and we'd love for you to tell us uh, how you think you compare to your character. You down for a little game? I'm ready. All right. Melody, who has the better wardrobe, you or Nikki? Oh, well, well, that gets into some intricate areas. I'm going to have to say both. Who has the better sense of humor, you or Nikki? <laughs> May. I mean, I try to ingest a little humor into her whenever I can, but she just doesn't quite have it. What can I, <laughs> I, I mean, the withering looks, I think, are where you do some of your finest 
comedic work. Thank you. And those are mine. Those aren't in the script. I mean, I'm taking my life in my hands whenever I choose to do that. And I don't do it during rehearsal because I don't want the booth to know I'm going to do it. Because if they knew that, they might not, you know, have my camera on. So I always wait till we're actually shooting. And uh, either they truly do like it or they've run out of time for the day to reshoot it. So anyway, I win. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Who has the better house? You or Nikki? Hmm. Hmm. Such a conundrum because I, you know, gosh, you've made me speechless now. I cannot stop thinking back to when you say Nikki's house, I want to see the original ranch in my brain. And so that's a devastating thing. It hurts my heart that that's not there anymore. So I'm going to have to say mine. Mm-hmm. Understood. And ditto. Um, who gives better advice, you or Nikki? Well, you know, I I do. Because I, I think that she thinks she's well-intentioned, but it never really works out. So either she hasn't thought it through Or maybe she's had a couple of drinks. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Who is luckier in love? Oh, me for sure. Mm -hmm. Me for sure. Let's see. On October 12th is my 37th. This is terrible that I get. You know what? After so many years, you kind of forget what year it is. But in my real life, it will be our 37th anniversary in a couple of weeks. Mazel tov. Mazel tov, exactly. Say that. <laughs> um, now, who throws better parties? You or Nikki? Mm, well, well, I think that I do because they're not as stuffy. And, you know, it's just fun people having fun uh, in a normal way. Really, not a lot of actors. Uh, we're not really big party people anyway, but when we do a party, I think people who have never been to our house before, they think that they're going to see a whole lot of actors there and and they never do. And they don't understand it. They think something not right with me. (laughs) But um, I don't know. I mean, I like to keep my friends. I mean, I still have friends from high school that are very close with me. And I don't know. Not that I don't have actor friends. It's just a different kind of crowd. And I think Nikki would care more about uh the people on her guest list not determining if she really has a good time with them or not but for other reasons for political reasons uh-huh, uh-huh. uh who has more patience hmm. patience i always say well i'm an aries so we are typically <laughs> patient which is absolutely true and um I am only patient with my children when they were little and even now when they're adults I will somehow find patience in me and pull it out for them. Whereas I don't think I will for anybody else. (laughs) Who cries easier? You or Nikki? Nikki. (laughs) That was easy. (laughs) Who's the better friend? She has more to cry about, I think. Who is the better friend? I am the better friend. I've never felt that Nikki does friends well. Uh, Well, I would never be her friend. Let's say that. And really, the only friend that she has had in all these years is Catherine Chancellor. Mm-hmm. And now that she's gone, who, who are her other friends? You know, not Phyllis, not Ashley, even though we're all, you know, scheming together right now. But she really has no friends. 
Mm-hmm. Note to Nikki, need some friends. Um, who is better in a crisis? I am. <laughs> I found, I sound so obnoxious now with these questions you're asking me and I'm immediately saying me, 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 me. I think, uh, well, history shows, I think that Nikki is never good in a crisis unless Victor is right there next to her and she can count on him to get her out of it. Mm-hmm. I think she's a bit overly dependent on that. But uh, whereas me, no, no, I I will just take charge and do what has to be done and then and then, and then fall apart later. But in the <laughs> moment, I will take care of it. Uh, who's better at keeping secrets? Oh. I am. <laughs> uh, I mean, what good is a secret if you're going to blab it? I mean, uh, a good secret is one that is kept. Mm-hmm. Uh, who holds a grudge longer? Mm-hmm. I think Nikki does. I'll bet you, if asked, Nikki could name all of the women <laughs> at either dallied with Victor or pissed her off for some reason. I'll bet you she could tell you all of their names, all 74 of them (laughs) right now. And I bet she stalks them on Facebook. (laughs) Um, Who is a better mother? Oh, that's always debatable. I mean, certainly I am. But, um, you know, I, I remember years where Nikki was not so great to her children. Uh, and I mean, now that they're adults, I, I guess it's better, but, uh, they have a different dynamic now, but I remember when the kids were Victoria and Nicholas were children, or maybe Victoria was a teen and he was nine or 10. Sometimes she was not so nice to them or, or made right decisions for them. Uh, and last but not least, who had a bigger hairspray budget in the 80s? Oh, well, certainly Nikki, my God. You can still smell the hairspray when you go up to hair right now. <laughs> that is hilarious. I that weren't true. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, among the things that you have done with great success at YNR over the years is play drunk. In your expert opinion, Melody, what is the key? to playing inebriation convincingly, but not over the top, you know, to get it just right. I think, um, God knows I'd love the opportunity to test it out again. (laughs) I think that I kind of, I would kind of very slightly dull my thoughts, my movements, my lines. Uh, You know how you can get to a kind of a fuzzy place? Not not that I'm thinking drunk, but I was just trying to be not quite so on top of it. Because uh, you're right. If you do too much, then, you know, it, it, it's no good. And it's not funny because I found that Nikki's funniest period was when she was drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me think of Sean Kanan because we had that great storyline where we were both drinking and we had such a good time doing it. So I know that Nikki just recently saw Deacon and I'm thinking, come on, writers, come on. <laughs> this is the perfect opportunity, but I don't know. 
<laughs> well, over the years and over the course of so many different writers and showrunners, have there ever been times where you felt like you've had to fight for the integrity of your character, even if that, even if it meant fighting against a storyline that was planned for Nikki? I don't know. I, I don't think I can say that, but I do remember fighting for the integrity of the show, the show itself. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, currently on YNR, as you referenced, Nikki is on a mission to take down Diane, and she has partnered with Ashley and Phyllis to do it. So tell us about what it has been like getting to work on this storyline with their portrayers, Eileen Davidson and Michelle Stafford. It has been so much fun. And who saw this coming? This took us all by surprise. And um we're just having so much fun. It's hard to get things shot because we're laughing uh, and ad-libbing and doing crazy things. But um, I, I hope that it goes on for a while because we are just having such a good time with it. I don't. I, I think they, the three of them are the most unlikeliest group to work together because there is something that annoys each one of us about the other. Yeah. <laughs> Always will. But right now, we've got to get it together and work together. Uh, and it ain't easy sometimes. Great. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and what's it been like to work again with the actress playing the character in Nikki's Crosshairs, Susan Walters, a.k.a. Diane? It is so great to have her back. Uh even though in my mind, I had trouble squaring the return of Diane because what I, Nikki and Mel remembered was sitting in that creek on top of Diane with the big rock hitting her, hitting her, hitting her. And so I, I conveniently had no memory of supposedly it was at that time revealed that she hadn't died. I don't remember it that way. I remember her being dead. So when they said Susan's coming back, well, first of all, it was hard for me because Susan wasn't the actress that I thought I had killed. <laughs> uh, so, but it's great. It's, it's like she never left and she plays the role so beautifully and we are having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do feel bad because whenever I'm working with her, I am vicious insults, slapping, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, when we're done, like, Susan, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Don't take this personally. Well, fans of YNR and B&B got a really big treat in, in the form of that crossover to B&B that you made and Nikki uh, unwittingly catching a glimpse of Kimberlyn Brown's In Disguise Sheila and also a very fun to watch reunion with Sean Kanan's Deacon. So tell us about your B&B experience. Oh, it was great. Um, I think I am the only YNR actor who has not done that crossover yet. <laughs> so I guess my name was at the very bottom of the list. <laughs> um, it was it was wonderful. It, uh, you know, of course, Sean, Sean is great. I could work with him every day for the rest of my life. Uh, but John McCook, who I adore. And John McCook was the star of YNR. Yes. I came on in 79. So, I, and I've always remained friendly with him. I just love him so much. I love his wife, Lorette. Uh, so it was great to work with him. It was great to work with everybody there. Um, and it, we are like sister shows. A lot of their crew used to be our crew and vice versa. So I knew everybody. And um, I, I'd love to do it again. Hint, hint, hint. <laughs> 
it was very cool to see you in the Forrester office. Like it felt right. And um, it just, even watching you interact with different characters just made it really mm-hmm. new and fun. So I hope there are more crossovers. Hint, hint. With Thank you. You. Yes, you can send some, you know, emails or something to that effect. Don't send them to me. I'm useless. I have no power. <laughs> well, we're going to play one more game. We're going to give you the name of someone who has been significant to your Y&R career. And you tell us the first word that comes to mind when you hear their name. Okay. So we're going to start with Eric Braden. Love. Peter Bergman. Friend. Joshua Morrow. Son. My son. He is my son. I mean, we had nothing but girls, so we have no boys. He's my son. <laughs> Sharon Case. The first word that came to my head to play by the rules was zany, but she's so much more than that. But I think I said zany because she and I love to do our Lucy Ethel fights. Um, she's so much more than zany. I, I love her to bits, but there it is, zany. <laughs> uh, Heather Tom. Oh, gosh. Oh, intelligent. Amelia Heinley. Oh. <gasps> My heart. Love that. Uh, Jean Cooper. Oh, God. Wow. So many choices there. I mean, it, it has to be matriarch. I mean, she was matriarchal in everything that she did, not not just the role she played. So I'm going to say matriarch. Eileen mm-hmm. Davidson. Well, I wanted to say two words. Well, sultry is the first one. And maybe that's just my Nikki brain thinking back to when, you know, Fighting over Victor, she was always the sultry one. And Nikki didn't know how to be sultry. <laughs> and it irritated her. <laughs> but um, she's like, but she's not. I mean, faux sultry, because she's actually tons of fun. Michelle Stafford. <gasps> Unpredictable. <laughs> Jess Walton. Oh, I love Jesse. Um, Wow. Miss you because I I I wish that she were you know on the show every day like she used to be. So whenever I see her, it's like Jesse, I miss you so much. I miss you so much. Um, I guess. Oh, this is not a fair game. One word is not enough. Well, you can you can do more than one. Old soul. I'm going to say old soul for Jesse. Okay, Uh, Don Diamant. (laughs) Jerry Lewis. He does Jerry Lewis impressions you would not believe. <laughs> Fun fact. Steve, Steve Burton. Steve Burton. Blue eyes. <laughs> um, Doug Davidson. Oh, Dougie. Oh, nostalgia. I hate that that's coming out of my mouth. But hope. I live in hope. Mm-hmm. We do too. Melissa Ordway. Oh, gazelle. <laughs> She is so tall and skinny. You've never seen anybody like this. She is a gazelle. (laughs) Um, And a newer actor you're working with, uh, Mark Grossman. Mark. Oh, complicated. I like it. You are good at this game. Yeah. No, I'm not. (laughs) I'm going to get all kinds of flack over what I've just said here. (laughs) Hard disagree. Well, Melody, the last time that we had you on the podcast, it was 2019 when you were marking your 40th anniversary on YNR. We obviously had no idea at the time that in 2020, real world events would 
take YNR out of production for a bit of time. Oh, what was that like for you, you know, to experience such an unprecedented hiatus from your 40 year job at that time? Well, freakish. I, I think we were all in a state of shock. The whole world was in a state of shock. Um, but at the same time, it allowed all of us to stay home and, you know, remember what we used to do before we worked every day, all day, get more acquainted with our pets and our families and play a lot of bananagrams and backgammon and such. Um, I actually had a great time. <laughs> um, but and, and we weren't off that long. Let's see. It started in March, mid-March, and uh, we came back mid-July. So a few months. Uh, and when we came back, it was very strange because it was not the same environment, certainly. And we had all these new rules and um, it it was difficult. So that was your 40th, but we're speaking to you as YNR is officially kicking off its 50th anniversary on CBS. You, of course, have been a key part of its success for over 43 years that you've been there. So what does this milestone mean to you as someone with such a rich personal and professional history with Young and the Restless? It is a milestone that I don't think any of us have really thought about in the past. I don't think we thought, are we going to make it to 50? No, we, we don't think that way. Um, but now that it is upon us, it's quite stunning. It's quite a remarkable achievement for any television show anywhere in the world. It happens so rarely. Um, and to be able to be an actor on that show for 43 of those years is incredible. It's it's such a blessing. I cannot even begin to explain it. So we're just going to eat it up and enjoy every minute of it. And I, I think it's probably going to last the entire year of the 50th because we have so many things to celebrate. I'm not exactly sure what, but I know the show is busy getting organized for that. So I'm looking forward to it. So are we. Well, before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to say directly to the loyal fans of YNR and of yours who are listening? I always say the same thing, but it always needs to be said over and over, which is without the fan support and love and gifts <laughs> and accolades, um, we certainly wouldn't be celebrating our 50th anniversary. We wouldn't be on the air anymore. They are everything. And we so appreciate it. And I don't know how long it's been since we've had a fan event because of COVID, but looking forward to that next one, that should be pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, we are looking forward to celebrating alongside this, uh, alongside YNR with this milestone. And we thank you so much for all your time today and just sharing these incredible stories and memories. It just blew by. Thank you so much. <laughs> it was great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Melody Thomas-Scott for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. <laughs>